Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here at Christ City, and uh, I am th- I am excited that we're beginning an 11-week series in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, yeah, Daniel is a very interesting. It's a fascinating book. It has really some of the uh, some of the most straightforward, kind of obvious narratives in the Bible. You know, every kid knows of some of the stories from Daniel. They did them in flannel graph in Sunday school. Um, I didn't go up in the church, so I missed all of that. Thanks be to God. And um, 
But Daniel also has some of the most difficult passages in the Bible. It has some very obscure apocalyptic visions and prophecies that we're going to look at in a few weeks. And so it's all mixed up here. And, uh, but Daniel is, is an important book for us to look at. Um, now, some, somebody might think, well, why are we looking at this ancient book? I mean, it was written back in the 6th century B.C., but if you remember Norm's message last week, and this is something where we, we connect to whatever we're preaching out of the Bible, is that it's through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit that all of God's Word continues to speak to us, even here in the 21st century. And that is a, a conviction and a confidence that all of us have, as Christians uh, need to have and to, to lean into by faith. And so what I want to do with you this morning, before we jump in and look at Daniel 1 in some detail, I really need you to lean in with me and pray. Would you please do that? Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, speak from your word to our hearts. Help us to be humble this morning, to lean in by faith and trust that you have a word for us as we seek to live faithfully in what often seems and feels to us like a very foreign land. Lord, help us, we pray, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go fast. I've got a lot to cover. Uh, Let me begin by saying that for Christians, and I preached on this a couple of weeks ago, for Christians, we are all citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says just that, that we are citizens of heaven. And that fact, the fact that we're citizens of heaven, that ought to really influence the way we think about our own citizenship. So if, if you're a Canadian here this morning, or maybe you're an American, or you're from some other country, what I want to say to you this morning is that because of your heavenly citizenship, um, there's a sense in which we're, we're exiles here. We're aliens, we're, we're sojourners here. There's a sense in which because of our heavenly citizenship, we really don't ultimately belong in this world. There's a sense in which wherever we are, there's, it, it's going to f- feel foreign to us. Jesus talked about this in John 17 when he said that his disciples are in the world, but not of the world. That's a very important distinction. We all find ourselves in Canada, but we're ultimately citizens of heaven. We're, we're exiles here. We're sojourners here. And I'm emphasizing this point because this theme of being exiles in a foreign country, in a foreign land, that theme is the point of contact for us between what God said to the ancient Israelites in Daniel and what God is saying to us in 21st century Vancouver through Daniel. This theme of exile, as we will see this morning and in coming weeks, is that point of important contact. And the book of Daniel is about living faithfully, living as faithful exiles in a foreign land. That's what the whole book is about. And we're going to unpack those themes in coming weeks. This morning, as we look at Daniel 1, I have three points for you. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. God's severe faithfulness, 
God's subtle faithfulness and God's subversive faithfulness. So here's the three points again. God's severe faithfulness, God's subtle faithfulness, and God's subversive faithfulness. Let's jump in and look at God's severe faithfulness. In verses 1 and 2, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, the opening verses here in Daniel are recalling what has to be the darkest episode in the long history of Israel. Here's what's going on, quickly. In 605 BC, I doubt any of us remember that, although I just had my birthday yesterday, and yeah, come on. No, forget it. Okay, forget it. (laughs) Um, In 605 BC, here's what happened. The Babylonians crushed the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish. You want to write that down. There's a test later. And, uh, And... what happened is Babylon became really the superpower in that whole part of the world. In Mesopotamia and all of Western Asia, they were the ruling power. But um, they had these sort of little kingdoms under their power. And in Judah, some trouble broke out. The, the kings in Judah were kind of stirring it up a little bit and causing trouble. So in 587 BC, um, Nebuchadnezzar came down hard on on Judah, and he besieged the city of Jerusalem, and there was an 18-month siege of the city of Jerusalem. So many people were murdered, thousands of people starved to death, and eventually what happened is the Babylonians destroyed the city, burned it down, and looted the temple, as we see here in this text. And also during this period, sort of over the years, what, what uh, Nebuchadnezzar did is he brought three waves of captives out of J- Judah and he brought them into captivity a thousand miles away in Babylon. This period is known by historians uh, as the Babylonian captivity, very original name. Now, tens of thousands of Israelites, because of that captivity, they became exiles. They found themselves ripped out of the promised land that God had given them and put down in a foreign pagan land in Babylon. They were exiles in this foreign pagan land. Now, eventually some of the exiles did return, but essentially these events spelled the end of Israel's independence. So this is a major dark episode in Israel's history. But not only was the death and the destruction and the deportation a great human tragedy, but imagine with me this, what, the, what this meant for their faith. This became, for the Israelites, a crisis of faith. I mean, imagine what they're thinking. This is, how could this happen? 
God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years. He led them and he brought them into the promised land and he set them up and gave them a glorious inheritance there. And now this, how could this happen? How could God allow it to happen? I'm sure people were wondering if God had forsaken his people and his promises. Well, Daniel 1 tells us that not only did God allow this to happen, God caused this to happen. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord did this. He didn't allow this. He took an active part in this. He made this happen. Now, this is a striking example, I think you'll agree with me, of what I'm calling God's severe faithfulness. And this is something that we need to lean in and listen to this morning. Because when I talk about God's, faith, God's severe faithfulness, what I'm saying is God is faithful to the warnings of his word. God is faithful to the warnings of his word. So, for example... Back in Leviticus chapter 26, this is before the Israelites entered into the promised land. Back in Leviticus 26, God gave a a list of blessings if the people were faithful, if the people were obedient. But also there, he gave a long list of punishments if the people were disobedient. So in Leviticus 26, this is what we read. The Lord says, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate And I myself will devastate the land and I will scatter you among the nations and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. So here's what's happening. In the opening verses of the book of Daniel, we are seeing the fulfillment of these warnings. God's severe faithfulness is faithfulness to the promises that he gave to his people 800 years earlier. But the Leviticus warnings are not the only ones that God had given his people. He warned them through prophets like Jeremiah. He warned them through uh, the prophet Isaiah. In fact, in Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. This is about 100 years before the Babylonian exile. And Isaiah tells them specifically what's going to happen. He said, behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, I I recognize the fact that reading warnings like this don't make us, you know, feel all warm and fuzzy. They They can make us feel uncomfortable. But it is 
my obligation to to remind us that God's faithfulness includes faithfulness to his warnings. And God doesn't only warn the Israelites in the Old Testament. God, the Lord God, continues to warn his people, the church, in the New Testament. So, for example, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have these famous passages where the Lord Jesus is walking amongst his people, walking amongst the lampstands representing his churches. And he says to four of the seven churches in Asia Minor that they must repent or they will face the consequences of their continued disobedience. Jesus is Lord of his church. He walks amongst his people and he graciously warns them to repent or face the consequences. In 1 Corinthians 11, we have a passage we looked at a number of weeks ago. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and warns them about taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And in fact, he says that because they've been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, many people are sick and ill, and some people have even died. It's a warning. And in Hebrews 10, we read, If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now these are very sobering words. But the warnings in the Bible are there to remind us that God is not a plush toy who solely exists to make us feel comfortable and happy. God is not a plush toy. You can tweet that out. Now, the Bible teaches many times that God, God is slow to anger. God is merciful and gracious. God is abounding in steadfast love. Thank God. But we must never make the mistake of imagining, of, of, of thinking at all, that God ever encourages us in our sin and disobedience. That's what the warnings are there for. They're there to warn us that we would break off, that we would repent, that we would return to the one who is faithful and merciful and forgiving and fills us and renews us and restores us. We need to listen to the warnings of the Bible. You see, it's through our faith in Jesus that God is preparing and purifying a people for himself. And along the way, God warns his children. He disciplines his children just the way any faithful father would. God is faithful to his warnings. Now, before we move on, let me draw your attention to one more thing in these opening verses. Look at verse 2 with me again. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, which is the temple, And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, 
and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is another example of God's severe faithfulness, but this time, what it means is that uh, for the sake of God's faithfulness, he's willing to suffer dishonor. For the sake of God's faithfulness, he is willing to suffer dishonor. What do I mean by that? Imagine this situation. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple has been burnt. The the very utensils in the temple, these gold utensils that are used for the worship of God, where are they now? They've been taken, and they've been taken into Babylon. Where are they? They're now in the temple of the God of the Babylonians. Now, this, this whole situation is optically very bad for God. It makes him look impotent. But God is willing to be shamed for the sake of his faithfulness. Now, the details may be very different. They are very different for us. Recent decades, what we've seen in our own culture is an eclipse of God. What we've seen is the emergence of what many are calling in our culture today a post-Christian culture. You're beginning to hear that language more and more. We live in a post-Christian culture. And what that means is that over the past decades, the church has steadily lost any influence that we used to have in our culture. And what we've also noted is that there is a growing hostility. There's a growing hostility toward many things that the Bible teaches on a number of different issues. I don't think I'm informing anyone here of something that they don't already know. And and this is a result of this influence of an ideology in our culture called secularism. And what secularism does is it squeezes Jesus Christ out of the public square. It squeezes the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ out of the public square. And it pushes him to the periphery where everyone can conveniently ignore him. And so, as a result, Christians if we say or do anything in public, if we live out our faith in public, and we must live out our faith in public, Christians are made to feel embarrassed or ashamed for their faith. Much, much more than in previous generations, Christians today feel like exiles living in a foreign land. And let me just say this. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Because just as God was faithful in Babylon, this is what the whole book of of Daniel is about, God's faithfulness in Babylon to his people. Just as he was faithful in Babylon, God will be, God is and will be faithful to us in a post-Christian culture. In fact, let me up the ante for you. In fact, if we were to look at the history of the church, what we would see is that God often does his greatest work when it looks like he's down for the count. There's no better example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The cross is a stunning example of God's victory through defeat. God the Son is condemned and dies. And from those events, God brings forgiveness and reconciliation and life to everyone who believes. Things are not often the way they appear when you're dealing with God. But let me give you a more uh, recent example. Consider the example of China. I don't know if you know this, but in 1950, China was going through what they call the Cultural Revolution. And in 1950, every Western Christian missionary was forced out of the country. They were kicked out of China. And what happened is that the communists, the atheist communist government, began to rigorously and aggressively persecute the church in China. And people from the West were worried about what would happen. But God was at work. God was at work as he's always been at work in dark situations. God was at work to do something that only God can do. Because when the curtain went up in China and people began to see what was going on, what was clear is that the church in China had flourished. Today, there are well north of 150 million Christians in China. It, it is, if it, if it isn't already, is it, it is about to become the most populous Christian or the most populated Christian country with the highest population of Christians. It's tough to say simple things. Well, that brings me to my second point. Look at verses 3 to 7. God's subtle faithfulness. In verses 3 to 7, here's what happens. We're introduced to Daniel and his friends, but we're also introduced to something else. We're introduced to Nebuchadnezzar's plan. See, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan to basically assimilate Daniel and his friends into the pagan culture. Look at verses 3 to 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal, of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, some of us might look at this and think, wow, what a great opportunity for career advancement. But actually, this represents an incredible challenge. You need to see that. This represents an incredible challenge. Nebuchadnezzar isn't just kind of out there headhunting for quality people. He's not just looking for the, the brightest and the most gifted people to come in and serve in his government. You see... 
Nebuchadnezzar wants to assimilate Daniel and his friends. He wants to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. It's like the Borg. Have you ever seen Star Trek The Next Generation? You know, the Borg. You will be assimilated and resistance is futile. Right? That's the scene here. And this plan, if they embrace it fully, will utterly undermine and threaten their faithfulness in this foreign land. They, they cannot embrace this plan. See, by conforming to the Babylonian culture, a pagan Babylonian culture, they would be utterly losing their distinct identity as God's set-apart people. They can't afford to do that. And let me just say, there's nothing new under the sun. This is the challenge that we all face. In every age, Christians have faced this challenge. And that's why this is such an important book for us to look at and study and read and pray over. Because Daniel is a handbook for living faithfully in a foreign land. This is a theme that we're going to encounter again and again. Now take a look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, let me just clarify something here. Verse 8 is not about the Daniel diet plan. Okay? That's not what this text is about. This text is, not, is about not being assimilated into the pagan Babylonian culture. This is about Daniel taking a firm stand to live faithfully in a foreign land. Now, some biblical scholars say that, and they're, they're right, I'm sure, that the reason why Daniel and his friends didn't eat the food from the king's table is that it, it would have been unclean. It would have been unkosher. It would have violated the Levitical dietary laws. And that's true. But I think that there's a, a deeper dimension to Daniel's determination here. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright, he makes this case that eating the food from Nebuchadnezzar's table would have suggested that Daniel was, was loyal, was he, he had a covenant loyalty to the king. Here's what Christopher Wright writes. In the ancient world, sharing the food of someone's table was a way of covenanting, uh, sorry, of cementing a covenant bond between people. Therefore, to eat from the king's table would have been seen as declaring total dependence and total loyalty to him. And now for Daniel and his friends, this is a bridge too far. They're not willing to go that far. They have to draw a line. And so they draw a line. They say no to sharing the food from the king's table. What they do is they choose loyalty to the king of heaven over loyalty to the king of Babylon. So let me ask you this morning, where... Where do you draw the line in your life? Where are you drawing lines between loyalty to Christ and loyalty to a culture that is in many ways and in growing ways very much opposed to Christ? 
I can't give you the easy answers. The book of Daniel won't give us the easy answers. But this is a question we must think about. It must be front and center in our minds if we are to live faithfully in a foreign land. We can't be unthinking about this. We must know when and how and why we draw certain lines and why we don't draw other lines. We'll look at that in a second. We have to be able to answer these questions. And the the issue is, as we'll see this morning and in future weeks, the issue is one of wisdom, of having the wisdom of James, the wisdom that comes from above, from God. Now look what happens in verses 10 to 13. And the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel wisely said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So why did this happen? It's because of what had come before. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This single sentence determines everything that happens here in the rest of this chapter. Daniel quietly, or God quietly gives Daniel favor. This is this subtle faithfulness. See, here's something we need to know. Most of the Lord's favor in your life comes subtly, comes quietly. We're looking for miracles. We're looking for mountains to move. And we miss the quiet, subtle ways that God is faithfully working in our lives and through our lives and for our good in our lives. And so God gives him this favor, and Daniel comes up with this idea. I don't know, test us. Let us go on this diet, the Daniel diet, and test us. He comes up with this great plan, this wise plan. Let us eat this way, then compare us after 10 days to all the other guys that eat from the king's table, and let's see who looks more svelte and fit. And, you know, I'm not the example here. And so that's exactly what happened. Look at verses 14 to 16. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. So Daniel and his friends, after 10 days of eating only vegetables, they look better than all the other guys that are eating all the king's food. Why? Because God is subtly faithful. He gave them favor, not only with the steward, but he gave them favor. This is a miracle. 
fatter in flesh, eating vegetables and drinking water. And God's subtle faithfulness helped Daniel and his friends keep that line, that line that they drew, that line that would keep them undefiled. He helped them to maintain it. He helped them to hold firm so they wouldn't be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. We're going to see this theme coming again and again in the rest of the book. But let me move to my third point, God's subversive faithfulness. Look at verses 17 to 20. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So we've already seen how Daniel and his friends drew a line about the food, right? They drew a line between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. We've seen that they said no to the king's food. But think for with me for a second. We've got to do this very quickly. Think about what Daniel and his friends said yes to. See, I don't want you to hear that our position is always to, to, to be contrary to our culture. Because Daniel and his friends took the names, right? And that's not a small thing. See, Daniel and his friends all had names that talked about Yahweh and the God of Israel. It was sort of built into their names. The way that Christopher, the name Christopher, the, the name Christ is built into that name. And what happened here is that they were renamed with names that had the name of Babylonian gods built into them. Now, I'm sure they held their nose as this was happening, but they allowed it to happen. I think it's because they knew who they really were. You can rename us, but you cannot change our hearts. But, but not only the names. They, they took careers working for the king of Babylon. They took, took civil service jobs. Now, imagine for working for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a bloodthirsty tyrant. He just destroyed their city, burned their temple, took the utensils from the temple. Now they're sitting in the temple of the Babylonian gods. He's murdered their family and friends. And they're willing to work for the guy. What about the education? Babylonian education is not all, you know, science and and math. It was steeped in paganism and astrology and occultism. This is a challenge. But even though Daniel and his friends would profoundly disagree with the whole sort of Babylonian pagan culture, this being renamed and serving in the, the government and learning the pagan learning, Nevertheless, nevertheless, they did not complain. 
They never fought for their religious rights and freedoms. I think this is an important lesson for us here. Not every accommodation to our post-Christian culture is a compromise to our faith. Some of the, the, the ways in which Christians interact on social media, everything is an issue to fight over. No, it's not. Learn from Daniel and his friends. Know where to draw the line, but not everywhere is where you should draw the line. We are strangers. We are exiles in a foreign land. This world is not submitted to Jesus Christ. I would, I would suggest to you that when things were more friendly for Christians, we were living in an illusion. The world was no less hostile to Christ, but rather it had domesticated to a degree the church. You see, the question is, what captivates our hearts? What captivates your heart? To whom will you be ultimately devoted? Where is your ultimate allegiance? Is it to the king of heaven? Or is it to the king of Babylon? Finally, we come to verse 21. It says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's so easy to read this and just skip over it. But this is so important. So what happened here is that the the author just fast forwarded big time. It's like one of those buttons you press and the DVD just skips ahead. And the author's fast forwarded to the end of the book. This is near now, verse 21. This is near the end of Daniel's life. In verses 1 to 20, he's probably 17, 18, 19 years old. Now he's in his 70s. And over that period of time, Nebuchadnezzar has died. Nebuchadnezzar has died. He is gone. And the kingdom of Babylon is no more. Now the Persian Empire is the big kid on the block. And now Cyrus is king. And yet, from that time to this time, Daniel remains. Why? Because of God's subtle faithfulness. Because of God's subversive faithfulness. Daniel is serving God's purpose in this foreign land. Three times in this passage, it says, God gave, God gave, God gave. See, God is in Babylon. God is in a post-Christian culture. And God is giving in ways that we need to have eyes to see. We need to trust Him to be at work. See, God is always at work. God is still working in history to move His people toward His purpose. And what is His purpose? To bring about the kingdom of His beloved Son. To bring about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. To bring it about in its, in its inauguration and then in its fullness. Through the church at the end of the age. 
Daniel teaches again and again that God is absolutely sovereign over all nations and all kingdoms of the world and he will raise up some and he will put down others and he is working to prepare the world for the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Daniel is written to exiles in a foreign land to encourage them to be faithful. We need the message of Daniel. The king is at work. The king is on the move. No matter what it might look like. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world. Every power that opposes God and his kingdom, he overcame them through his death and glorious resurrection. And as I said in the beginning, and I said a few weeks ago, we are now with him seated in heaven. We are now citizens of heaven. That is who we really are. That is what we're really looking for. And looking forward to when the king comes in glory at the end of the age. And his reign will be forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would be a people who know where to draw lines. And stand fast. Remain faithful. We pray that Lord, you would manifest your faithfulness to us as we look to Jesus Christ and that you would work in us and through us and for us, not that our name would be great, but that your name, the greatness of your name would be seen. Even if our culture rails against you, denies you, opposes you, Lord, grant us like Daniel and his friends to know where to draw lines, to know what to say no to, but but to, Lord, to be present for good and for your glory and for the blessing even of the world that we inhabit in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.